This episode of Edge of Sports is brought to you by FreshBooks. For the best way to make tax season easy, get FreshBooks, a cloud accounting software designed exclusively for small business owners and freelancers. Just go to freshbooks.com slash edge and enter edge in the how you heard about us section. Edge of Sports is also brought to you by Casper Mattresses. Go to casper.com slash edge for great offers on amazing mattresses and you'll be supporting the show, Edge of Sports. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Our guest this week is a sports politics legend, one of the greatest tennis players to ever walk the earth, and someone who has never been shy, whether in the 1980s, 1990s, or today, to speak about her politics or openly live her truth as a proud LGBT woman. We're talking about the person who has won more singles and doubles titles than anyone in tennis history, someone who over one five-year stretch won 97% of every match she played. Her name is Martina Navratilova. Martina, thank you so much for joining us here on the Edge of Sports podcast. Thanks for having me. I just did yoga this morning, so I'm feeling good. We are going to talk to Martina about the current polarized state of politics in this country, her memories of the Prague Spring, and how she would come up with a strategy to defeat Serena Williams. I can't believe this. We're talking to Martina, one of my personal heroes. Let's get to it right away. As someone who grew up in the 1980s, I got to tell you that for me and for many of my friends, you were our first political athlete, like someone who we felt like was using your platform to make a difference in the world. And I've always wanted to know, like, how conscious were you in that time that you were carrying on a tradition set by people like Muhammad Ali, Billie Jean King, of course, and others? I think for me, you know, we were more conscious of carrying the torch for women's sports and women's tennis, fighting for equal prize money, equal representation, etc. The gay thing kind of happened by because that's who I am. I didn't realize the breadth and importance of it, I think, at the time, until years later when I would get letters from kids that didn't play tennis, thanking me for saving their lives because they finally knew somebody who was like them and they didn't feel like they didn't belong anymore, that it was okay to to be that. So, you know, tennis was one thing, the, the women's uh, rights was another, and then the gay rights was another. So I didn't really think about it too much because I was kind of busy playing tennis. Yeah. <laughs> no, that makes a lot of sense. You know, and for a lot of us, it was political, and I know this sentence might sound a little strange, but it was political just seeing your body on the court. Like it had a musculature and a power that we had not seen in women's sports before, and that had a political repercussion about how we understood women as athletes. Um, how conscious of you were you as, say, 26-year-old Martina that your, your very body was breaking new ground for people? Not at all. Um, you know, my mom told me to cover up my arms since I was little because I was always muscular. <laughs> so it was about uh, trying to be feminine, uh, which didn't come easily to me. I'm not naturally. I'm, I'm think of myself not as a obviously feminine female, but uh, not not butch either. I was kind of in between, and uh, my body was what it was, and I didn't 
enhance it for any reason other than to be a better tennis player. Uh, but I didn't not do it either because I didn't want to look a certain way because nowadays I, I'm hearing some of the women players don't want to get in the gym and get stronger because they don't want to look more muscular than they are. Mm. Uh, and I'm thinking, that's crazy. You know, you're a, you're a female athlete. Um, do what you need to do to be the best tennis player you can be, which is exactly what I did. And mm. uh, that was that. So, so you there... know, It was all about function. Right. So, so you think some players, even still in 2016, are thinking about their aesthetic yeah. as a certain type of women over their ability yeah. to train? Yeah, well, they're saying it. So it is a fact. It's not an opinion. It's what they're saying. But, you know, it's okay to each its own. Whatever, whatever floats your boat, as I say, or whatever bakes your cookies. <laughs> whatever bakes your cookies. That, that's one I have not heard. I'm going to incorporate that's that. That's because I made it up. <laughs> a couple <laughs> of years done. ago, whatever bakes your cookies. Whatever bakes your cookies. Um, yep. On a personal level, uh, growing up, I was I was a huge tennis fan, and it challenged my own youthful ignorance about human sexuality just to see that you would have uh-huh. your partner in the family section. Like that was a, a uh-huh. huge deal for me growing up. And given the climate of the 1980s, the Reagan 80s, that that was audacious uh, were you thinking of it at the time as a political act as something audacious or was it just oh i want the people close to me in the family section it wasn't anything other than what was important to me and uh audacious what was audacious was me leaving my country and my family when i was 19 uh so after defecting and and being without my family for five years uh, not being able to see them them not being able to come to see me Everything else was a piece of cake, mm. really. And, and it's, it's great that you just mentioned that because that's a bridge to the next question here. I found this quote that you said, I think around the time of Newt Gingrich's contract with America, contract on America, where you said, uh, the most absurd part of my escape from the unjust system is that I have exchanged one system that suppresses free opinion for another the Republicans in the U.S. manipulate public opinion and sweep controversial issues under the table. It's remarkable that you said that 20 years ago, and I'm just looking at the political landscape in 2016. Look where we are now. Yeah, yeah I, that's my question. Is what, what do you think about the current state of civil liberties and open discourse in this country? I tell you, uh, if I was in the same position that I was in, you know, in 75, trying to leave a communist country and live a free life, America is not the country that I would be thinking about going, considering how many rights the GOP is really trying to take away. I mean, I've openly said it. Ted Cruz, if he's elected president, first thing he will do is roll back uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell and same-sex marriage uh, law, (laughs) which is law. Hello, you can't really take it away. But... It's really terrifying the direction we're going now. It's towards a totalitarian regime. Apparently, there was a study done to see what makes supporters of Donald Trump, what is the common denominator, because he he kind of breaches the whole spectrum of left-wing, right-wing, you know, all these people from different backgrounds that go towards him. And the one thing they had in common is they like authoritarian uh, figures. Wow. Right. Okay, that's what I ran away from, because, you know, Communist Party is an authority and figure. It's not maybe one human being, but it still is the same kind of ball of wax in that these people are telling you how to feel, what to say, uh, you know, what to do, 
uh, with your life, with your body, uh, you know, women's rights, gay rights, I mean, who to love, really? Mm -hmm. That's what I ran away from. So, of course, I'm not going to go live anywhere else, but it's just frustrating that you feel like you make you make progress in a certain way and now you go backwards mm. there was a joke in the communist party you know it's a communist dance it's one step forward two steps backwards and everybody's still clapping <laughs> <laughs> that's what i feel we're doing right now mm. with uh you know with with ted cruz saying oh you need to get on your knees first before you make any decisions so we're kind of going towards uh evangelical Christian version of Sharia law, if mm. we have Ted Cruz as president. That's where I can put it. So it may, hopefully we won't be cutting people's hands off and stoning women for adultery, but we're going in that direction. Certainly not that severe, but it's, it's the severity of it that's the only difference. And so this is what we have in common with the countries that are completely dominating their, you know, their populace and telling women how to dress, what to do, telling men what to do, what not to do. I mean, it's well, actually the men are telling the women, yeah, the men yeah. pretty much do what they want. So it's, it's terrifying to me. And uh, anyway, so here I am going on a political rant, which I didn't <laughs> intend to do, but uh, I saw it coming. Yeah, I saw it coming when, when Bush got elected. I said, you know, he was making all the decisions based on money rather than what's good for the people. And the middle class is disappearing. It's going to disappear. I said this 15 years ago. You also, I, th I think, you know, you've spoken about the ways in which uh, athletes, particularly on questions of sexuality, can push back against this kind of uh, fundamentalism. But, but I want to I read a quote that you said, and I've quoted this in talks a lot over the last couple of years, which is why I love this quote, but now, now I have questions about it. Uh, when Jason Collins uh, came out, this, you wrote this amazing essay in Sports Illustrated, and you said... Uh, now that Collins has led this watershed moment, I think and hope there will be an avalanche. Come out, come out, wherever and whoever you are. It is beautiful out here, and I guarantee you this. You will never, ever want to go back. You will only right. wonder why it took so long. I mean, beautiful yeah. quote. And yet other than um, some college athletes, and I don't want to diminish the significance of that, we really haven't seen that kind of avalanche why do you, in men's or women's sports. Why do you think... The, the, the homophobia in sports is, is so stubborn and so persistent. Well, it, it is getting better um, because you see now the NFL, the, the National Hockey League, uh, Baseball League, they're doing all these PSAs and, right. and, and initiatives. And, you know, this is NFL was the same league that uh, supported Reggie White, who mm -hmm. was as rampant a homophobe as you can get openly, you know, just bullying gay, gay people, and the NFL supported him. And this is less than 20 years ago. So it seems like it's moving slowly, but in terms of humanity, it's, it's moving pretty fast. It's just not fast enough, obviously. It's not an avalanche. It's one little boulder going down. Right. Uh, but eventually it'll get better. You know, I, I just hope one day it won't be an issue at all. But it can only not be an issue when, once we have equal rights, equal protection under the law all the way around. It's a long slog, but it's much easier, again, in individual sports because I can always play tennis. I, I don't know if I could have come out had I been a basketball player because maybe I don't get to play anymore because the homophobic coach doesn't put me on the team. You know? So, uh, and, and, and no other team signs me, and, and, you know, I go to try to play in Europe or something. So I, I had it easy, uh, quote-unquote, as a, as a tennis player because nobody could keep me from playing. Right. And when you get in. And that is it. When we think about the great political athletes, I don't think it's a coincidence that 
people like yourself, yeah. Billy Jean, Arthur Ashe, but then boxers like Muhammad Ali. I mean, these oh, are yeah. individual sports, not team sports. Yeah. And so I, I'd be I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you um, a couple of questions about tennis today uh, before uh, I let you go. I. I thought it was fascinating when, when John McEnroe said that it sort of went by without a lot of uh, questioning or debate, but he said we need to start thinking about Serena less as the greatest tennis player ever than perhaps the greatest female athlete of the century. What, what do you think about that assessment of Serena's place at this point in her career? Uh, well, you know, it's hard to compare athletes from different eras, and it's certainly difficult to compare athletes from different sports. So she's one of the greatest players of all time, one of the greatest athletes of all time. Uh, when they were trying to put that mantle on me, I'm like, look, I'm in a, in a select group of amazing women players and amazing uh, women athletes. So let's leave it at that. To put it in, uh, you know, in a kind of a ranking is crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what would Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias uh, be like if she was born 20 years ago was, was almost playing tennis. What would uh, Jackie Joyner Cressy uh, be like as a tennis player or as a basketball player? I mean, you know, it's all subjective, and I think we all want to be part of the latest and greatest, but that should not be diminishing who came before. You know, Jesse Owens, what would he be like uh, running now against Usain Bolt? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, at the time, he was the greatest. At the time, I was the greatest. Now, certainly, Serena is the greatest uh, of her generation. So we can leave it at that uh, because you're trying to compare apples and oranges, really. Well, you really were the greatest. And at the start of this interview, uh, I, I read off some of the statistics that people might not know. I mean, winning 97% of your matches over a five-year period is kind of a mind-boggling number to even get your head around. Playing a little bit of Time Machine, how does the Martina of 1985 play Serena? Like, what is your strategy? Well, same as, as it was then. I would, but I think I would be playing differently now. I wouldn't be chip and charging. I'd be running around my backhand to hit forehands and coming on bigger shots and pick my spots. I couldn't serve and volley all the time, but I would still be serving and volleying. But, uh, you know, try to... It, tennis is not just about hitting the shots you want to hit, but also making your opponent hit the shots they don't want to hit. So I was always good about running my opponents on the diagonal, which means hitting it short and then hitting it deep the other way. Players don't really use the whole court because they don't have the skill set to do things with the ball that I could do. So it would be chip one way and topspin the other and just try to get the ball in play and then run everything down and attack, attack, attack as soon as I can. And you think she's vulnerable to that strategy of attack, attack, attack? Well, uh, who isn't Right. if you do it well enough? We'll be right back in just a minute, but first, a quick word from FreshBooks. Look, tax time for me is like the 12th layer of hell because I've got a dozen tiny W-2s, a bunch of work expenses I don't know how to deduct, and a mind for math that's about as impressive as the free throw shooting of DeAndre Jordan. For me, FreshBooks has been a game changer. For the best way to manage your books and make tax season easy, get FreshBooks, a cloud accounting software designed exclusively for small business owners and freelancers. FreshBooks stands out where it really counts, getting us paid. You can 
can create and send professional invoices in just 30 seconds. And then if you don't get paid within a time frame that you set, FreshBooks sends an automatic reminder to your client. The results speak for themselves. FreshBooks users get paid five days faster on average and is a hell of a lot cheaper than getting a lawyer. Don't take my word for it. Right now, FreshBooks is offering my listeners 30 days of unrestricted use totally free, and you don't need a credit card to sign up. Just go to FreshBooks.com slash edge and enter edge in the how you heard about us section. That's FreshBooks.com slash edge. Enter edge in the how you heard about us section. And guess what? You'll be supporting Edge of Sports as well. It's just a couple of of, of listener questions, if I could. Uh, Zach Weiner he said, I realized that Martina was only 11 or 12 at the time of the Prague Spring, but how did it shape her political consciousness? Were there any specific individuals or images of resistance that stayed with her and gave her the strength to be so honest in the face of such intolerance? Well, of course. I mean, Jan Pollock set himself on fire in protest of the communist regime. So, you know, when people are willing to do that, anything else that you might do pales in comparison. Prague, the people of Czechoslovakia mourn deeply. Jan Palak, 21 years old, a philosophy student, had taken his life in a most terrible way in protest against the Soviet occupation of his country. Jan and many of his fellow students held a growing fear that their countrymen were getting accustomed to the Soviet occupation. Jan set himself ablaze. His death was the spur he'd hoped it would be. Jan Palak was quietly laid to rest. His family did not mourn alone. The Czech nation will not quickly forget the selfless act of the young man who died for his country's freedom. I was in Pilsen uh, trying to play a tennis tournament when I was in 68. I was almost 12 when the Russians came in on uh, uh, the evening of August 20th. Um, so morning of 21st was uh, when uh, my, my dad called me. I was at my friend's house in, in Pilsen, and he said, don't go outside because there are Russian tanks outside. I was, this was 8 in the morning. I was supposed to play a tournament that day. So, of course, we went outside, and he said, I'm coming to get you. And he came on a motorcycle, and we rode back from Pilsen to my hometown, which is maybe 120 kilometers or so away. Not a big deal, but when you're going, you know, 30 miles an hour on a on a road that's pockmarked by uh, tanks, they basically ruin all the roads. It's uh, it's pretty scary. August the 21st, 1968, Soviet tanks roll into the center of Czechoslovakia's capital city, ending what had become known throughout the Western world as the Prague Spring. What was so particularly shocking about the Soviet move was its total duplicity and cynicism. Just weeks before... So that was a pretty big day for me and for our country. And, uh, and then when I left uh, Czechoslovakia in, in 75, everything else after that was, was a piece of cake. Alex Edling wanted me to ask you about the importance of rivalries. Uh, You, of course, had Chris Everett, arguably one of the great rivalries in the history of sports. Serena doesn't really have a rival in the same way. Do you think her achievements will be undervalued historically because of the absence of that kind of a rival? Well, you can only play who you can play. Uh, So no doubt she, she won more titles because she doesn't have that rival. Uh, you can only hit the ball that's hit to you, so you can't put people across the net. So it's a sh- it's a shame, but it doesn't diminish one way or the other. It's just it is what it is. You know, mm-hmm. I would have won more had Chris not been around. Chris would have won more had I not been around. 
Um, I'd like to congratulate Martina on winning. I, I know it was very special because their first U.S. Open, and she really deserves it. I think that made her a little bit more hungry than me today, but she played great tennis all week, not just today, but she played great all week. And I'd like to congratulate her, and hopefully I'll get back at her next year. <laughs> but we made each other better tennis players. Uh, Serena's kind of having to push herself because she doesn't have anybody nipping at her heels. The new generation hasn't quite uh, caught up yet. By the time I was Serena's age, Steffi Graf had only won like eight Grand Slams. Right. Yeah, uh, so, you know, the new generation just um, hasn't, hasn't shaped up yet. Uh, Paul Burton wanted me to ask you your thoughts about cannabis and its use in athletic training for pain relief uh, to lessen <laughs> the side effects of any medical treatments and uh, if you think it's something that could be incorporated into a world-class athletic regimen. I have no idea. I, I wouldn't think that it would be helpful for your uh, for your sport to uh, you know to to be talking a, a bit. But uh, for pain relief, I have no idea. I you know the, the biggest pain relief I ever took was some Advil because I I really was lucky with my body. I, we don't get beat up that much on the tennis court like football players do. But certainly, it seems that this country is heading towards legalization of marijuana, which for me is definitely the right way to go because I just don't see it as a should be an illegal substance. But I personally don't uh, smoke because when I did, it, all I want to do is eat. So I'm trying to lose some weight, so mm. that's kind of kind of productive. No, I hear I hear you. Munchies and low body fat are a very tough thing to to live with side by side. <laughs> they don't go together. Don't go together. <laughs> And lastly, Brooke Zelser had a really interesting question that, that had me look online, and it got me more curious about your thoughts, because I, I was bombarded with questions that people wanted to ask you, but she wanted you to know if you if you believed that uh, Mel Giacomo deserved a place in the International Tennis Hall of Fame, <laughs> the great photographer. Uh, he's an amazing photographer. It's a tough field, because there are so many that do so much, but... Uh... And Mel's body of work certainly would warrant that, I would think, because he's been there for decades. And not only that, but his take on, on the tennis world is a little off the beaten path. So just for that, I think he, would, uh, he should be there. Mm. That, that, that'll be the, uh, the big takeaway from this interview. Martina supports Mel DiGiacomo for the Hall of Fame. That'll be the, <laughs> the newsmaking part. Um, your workout regimen was so legendary, and I just for for myself, I always wondered if, if music was a part of your workout. Like, what music did you listen to? What what, what charges you up? Not at all. I love great music. I now have playlists when I'm working out, and I have my you know wireless Bluetooth headphones. Uh, so. I'm up with the latest technology, but playing tennis, first of all, you need to hear the ball hitting your racket and, and hearing it coming off your opponent's racket, so you can't play with headphones on or loud music. But for, for being in the gym, yeah, I mean, there was, but this is before time of, uh, we had the Walkman, maybe, you know, <laughs> and you didn't have little headphones. So What's on your playlist now? It just wasn't now? manageable back then. <laughs> My playlist, um, mostly women, but, uh, you know, uh, da- good dance music. I love, like, Annie Lennox, Lady Gaga, Rihanna, uh, you know, women that rock, of course, Adele, uh, Elton John, just good, happy music. Abba always comes in handy. You know, Abba. Makes you put a smile, puts a smile on your face. If sure. you don't like Abba, you don't like life. You know? <laughs> if you change your mind, take a chance. I'm the first in line. Honey, I'm still free. Take a chance on me. If you need me, let me know. Gonna be 
Well, thank you so much for your time. I'd be remiss to ask you, do you see yourself hitting the campaign trail in 2016 for uh, anybody? Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm hoping it's uh, obviously Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders. That those are the only two choices. But I think Hillary Clinton is by far and away the most qualified candidate, period, of any party to run this country. So, but she also happens to be a woman, and she also happens to be a Democrat. So, yeah, I would, um, I would definitely be uh, hitting hitting the campaign trail for her if the you know situation arises. Well, hopefully you can uh, hit a, a absolute grand slam down uh, Ted Cruz's throat at some point in the next <laughs> in the next year, and Trump too if he gets in your way. Well, hey. <laughs> let's see who who gets it on the right right side. But geez, it's a, it's a pretty strange field to say the least. Anyway. Martina, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Have a great day. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. That was amazing. That was everything I could have hoped it would be. Martina, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your politics and your passion. For people who want to keep up with Martina's opinions about the political state of things, she is never shy, and you can follow her on Twitter, at Martina. She actually does have a website. It's at martinanevratilova.com, and you can find a link in the description of this podcast. Like a lot of writers, I'm hunched over a screen all day, and I used to have awful back problems before my time. And now I'm A-OK. I did physical therapy, I lost some weight, I strengthened my core, but the game changer for me was getting the right kind of mattress. That's why I'm so proud to have Casper Mattresses as a sponsor of the show. Casper offers an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It's got the right sink, the right bounce, and uses both latex foam and memory foam to make the mattress fit your back, not your back fit the mattress. So try Casper. They offer a risk-free trial and return policy. That means you can try Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. And they're made in Atlanta in labor conditions that won't keep you up nights. Try $500 for twin-size mattresses and $950 for a king-size mattress. That's really inexpensive anyway, but the amount you'll save on chiropractors alone will be off the chain. And we have a special offer to listeners of this show. You can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash edge and using promo code edge terms and conditions apply and now i'm going to do a part of the show where i do a column read from my latest piece at the nation this particular piece uh, is about Peyton Manning, jock culture, rape culture, and how the past has never really passed. And if you want to read this, you can find a link in the description to this podcast. This is the story of the week in sports, is this idea of who is Peyton Manning and why does it even matter? So I'm going to talk about this right now. Okay, so let's start with some quotes. It doesn't matter. Who cares? It's just a fraternity prank. It's old news. 
Peyton Manning's many media prize fighters were out in full force on Saturday after the New York Daily News published a thorough account of a sexual harassment claim levied against the 39-year-old quarterback when he was a college football superstar at the University of Tennessee. Now, it's certainly true that this story has been in the public sphere for 13 years. I've written about it, and many sports writers can say the same. This is a vile story, for those of you who've never heard it, where young Peyton was accused of sitting on the face of a female athletic trainer, bare-assed, spread wide. Now, Peyton in his book claimed he was just quote-unquote mooning a track athlete, also there for physical therapy, and the trainer, whom he described as having a vulgar mouth, took offense. But Peyton's actions were serious enough that this vulgar-mouthed woman in question immediately reported the incident to the Sexual Assault Crisis Center in Knoxville. And the other athlete in that training room, who Peyton claimed to be mooning, wrote him a letter in 2002 saying, according to USA Today, you might as well maintain some dignity and admit what happened. Do the right thing here. End quote. So is this old news? No, it's not for a couple of reasons. First, the New York Daily News columnist Sean King, who wrote this piece that went viral over the weekend, had access to the entirety of the complaint levied against Manning and the University of Tennessee. This brought several new factors to light. We learned, for example, that John Underwood, who was the co-author of the Manning family memoir, which was called Manning, A Father, His Sons, and a Football Legacy, testified under oath that Peyton's father, Archie, tried to get him to stick in the book that the trainer who reported him, Dr. Jamie Nawright, was not credible because she liked to have sex with black student-athletes in the dorms. I mean, Jesus Christ, that, that is kind of a pertinent memo uh, about who the Mannings are, the idea that that would even cross their minds. We also learned that the attacks on Dr. Norwright weren't something that took place 20 years ago, but have taken place over the course of many years. The Mannings cannot let this go. Their almost Tourette's-like desire to attack Dr. Norwright has never been sated. But most critically, the lawsuit reveals in methodical and stark detail the relentless efforts executed by the powers that be at the University of Tennessee to make sure that Manning and their lucrative Rocky Top football program was shielded. Instead of airing out the issues that may have existed, they went full politics of personal destruction on Dr. Norwright's character and credibility. And this is why the story matters, for reasons even beyond the ways in which it peels back Manning's carefully curated image. It matters because the twisted culture that led to Manning being protected and Dr. Norwright being destroyed has endured. On Tuesday of last week, six women filed a civil suit against Tennessee. Four say that they were raped by athletes on campus, three by football players. In their suit, they contend that Knoxville has, quote, a long-standing, severely hostile sexual environment of rape by male athletes, particularly football players, that was condoned and completely unaddressed. People should read Jessica Luther's breakdown about the case at Vice Sports that dissects why the plaintiffs allege that there is, quote, an official policy of deliberate indifference to known sexual assault at the University of Tennessee. And for people who want to read Jessica Luther's piece, we will have a link to it in the description of this podcast. Now, I also contacted Jessica Luther and asked her one very basic question, which to me is what gets at why this Manning story is so important in 2016. I asked her, Given that Tennessee has had a great deal of turnover in both the athletic department and school administration over the last two decades, does she see the recent lawsuit with what happened with Peyton Manning 20 years ago 
as connected. Luther wrote me the following. Yes, I see them as connected for two different reasons. One, the lawsuit filed by the six women makes this connection. At the beginning of the suit, they list incidents they feel are examples of the overall culture in UT athletics, especially football, that minimize and ignore sexism, sexual violence, and overall poor conduct behavior on the part of athletes over the last two decades, going back to 1995. Manning is listed in that lawsuit as one of these examples. Two, the lawsuit is against UT, the university itself, and not any individual, not the AD, the president, or any coach. The argument that there is an overall culture at the institution that encourages, quote, deliberate indifference and clearly unreasonable acts and omissions that created a hostile sexual environment. If anything, reading the defamation suit against Manning in conversation with last week's lawsuit against Tennessee shows that it doesn't matter who the president or AD is. That's the whole point. The most important and powerful part of this lawsuit is this argument that the interest of college football is in charge and the whole university bends to that. End quote. It is difficult to look at this from every possible angle and not agree with Ms. Luther. That's why this is really not a Peyton Manning story. He is just a high-profile illustration of the priorities at play and the ways in which the reputations, not to mention the very safety of women, are irrelevant to the needs of big football. If this is ever going to change, it will happen one school and one battle at a time. In other words, the fight is underway to clean up Knoxville, and Peyton's case is not only relevant, it's foundational. The school did not confront Peyton's actions two decades ago. They covered it up, And now the school is paying the price for a story of gender, race, and the corruption of the soul of the Old South. The words of William Faulkner could not be more appropriate. The past is never dead. It's not even past. And now we have the Just Stand Up Award this week. And it's kind of musical this week. We're going to the musical realm less than sports, but I do believe it all ties in. First and foremost, we want to give the award to Arcade Fire lead singer Wynn Butler, who won the MVP at the Celebrity All-Star Game in Toronto, part of the NBA All-Star Game weekend festivities. Afterwards, on ESPN, where they were asking him about his 15.14 rebound performance, Butler, whose band Arcade Fire has never been shy about their politics, said, quote, it's an election year in the U.S., the U.S. has a lot it can learn from Canada. Healthcare, taking care of people. And then ESPN Sage Steele stepped in. And let's play the audio right now of what she said. Congratulations. Thank you. I just want to say, as an election year in the U.S., the U.S. has a lot they can learn from Canada. Healthcare, taking care of people. And I think- so we're talking about celebrity stuff, not politics. Congratulations on your MVP. And shut down by Sage Steele. But good for Wynn Butler, because Sage Steele, who has never been shy about her own right-wing politics, what she's actually doing there is not saying, hey, we shouldn't talk about politics. She's saying, we shouldn't talk about your politics. So good for Wynn Butler for laying that bear for all of us to see. Win Butler for the win. The second 
award this week goes to someone who has nothing to do with sports, yet I want to give a shout-out to him because of some things we talked about this week. How could we not do a Just Stand Up award on any level without saying something about Kendrick Lamar's utterly incendiary, unbelievable, profound merging of art and politics, his performance at the 2016 Grammy Awards? Hypocrite in 2015. Once I finish this, if you listen, then sure you will agree. Been feeling this way since I was 16. Come to my senses. You never liked this anyway. Broke your friendship. I meant it. I'm African American. I'm African. I'm black as the moon. Heritage of a small village. Part of my residence. Came from the bottom of mankind. My hair is nappy. You know that it's big. My nose is rounded wide. You hate me, don't you? You hate my people. Your plan is to terminate my culture. You know you're evil. I want you to recognize that I'm a proud monkey. Compared to lost my perception, but can't take a medley of his songs set to an unbelievable scenescape of fire, prisons, referencing Trayvon Martin, referencing the criminal injustice system, referencing Michael Brown. It was Black Lives Matter writ large. But you know what else it was? It was quote-unquote unapologetically black, which is a phrase we used repeatedly on last week's show when discussing Beyonce's formation video and her halftime performance, as well as Cam Newton. So serious dap to Kendrick Lamar, because he raised the bar on unapologetic blackness at the Grammy Awards. I don't talk about it, be about it, every day a sequel. I don't talk about it, about it every day I see. I don't talk about it, about it every day I see. I don't talk about it, about it every day I see. Thank you to Martina Navratilova. You can follow her once again at Martina. Thank you for fulfilling my bucket list dream of being able to interview you. Thank you to Dan Bloom and everybody at the Panoply family. You can follow Dan on Twitter at Dan Bloom Sports. If you have any questions for me, Dave Zirin, you can always reach me at edgesports at slate.com or on Twitter at Edge of Sports. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. Subscribe to the show on Stitcher. We are out of here. Peace. We gonna be all right. You a house, you a car for the acres and the mule, a piano, we could...